What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And not even 24 hours after Fed Chair Jay Powell elevated the pain of inflation over the pain in banking, well, this regional bank heat map speaks for itself. There's plenty of pain going on in the regionals today, a couple of them in the green, but not many. Two in particular are making big headlines. You can find them down here. We'll get to the details in a moment. Red across the board for the KRE Regional Bank ETF. Massive declines for PacWest and Western Alliance in particular. So how do we stop the bleeding? A congressional backstop on deposits, a moratorium on bank short selling. Former FDIC Chair Sheila Baer joins us live in just a moment to weigh in. First, though, let's bring in Dom Chu, who's here to lay it all out for us at this hour. So we've pretty much halved the losses, at least in the broader S&P 500, Kelly. So if you're looking at 4,067 right now, you should know at one point in the day we were off more than 40 plus points. Wow. Uh, so we're down 23 right now, half of 1%. So again, having the, uh, the, the losses there, the Dow Industrial is down 326 points. We were down over 400 at one point. So a little bit more uh, downside there. The Nasdaq Composite, 11,992. So now back below the 12,000 mark. The S&P particular, watch 4,039. That's that 50-day moving average that a lot of traders like to look at as a sentiment gauge. Sure. Anyway. Okay, so the banks. You pointed out some of that heat map stuff that's going on for the KRE regionals. If you look at Bank of Hawaii, Zions, these two are not directly affected by what's happening with PacWest and Western Alliance, but they are Western U.S. regional banks, and they've been kind of caught up in everything right now. So BOH, Zions Bank Corp, off about 10 11% in trading so far, and that's dragging the entire KRE regional bank ETF down about 6%, again, off the lows. Right. Those two in particular you mentioned, let's take a look at those, because they are headliners today if you look at, say, PacWest and Western Alliance. If you look at the chart so far, what we are seeing is a down 46% move for PacWest. Now, what they did do is acknowledge that they have met with potential investors, potential partners. They are still exploring strategic options as well as strategic asset sales. They've made a record statement on that. PacWest down 46%. Western Alliance, a slightly different story, reporting from the Financial Times earlier today saying that they were exploring a possible sale and strategic options. And the company flat out comes out and says that's false. Nothing of the sort is happening right now. So we have been trading and halted multiple times. We're off 30%. And believe it or not, that's well off the session lows. And then one more, because there's, there's so much to talk about in regional banks. First Horizon was supposed to be acquired by Toronto Dominion in Canada. $13.4 billion deal. They've scrapped it. TD and First Horizon say it's mutual. TD basically says there was no clarity on when we could actually get a deal done for this particular thing. And regulators are too caught up in everything else going on. They've scrapped the deal. TD's up on the news. First Horizon, of course, down, Cal. That got me thinking, Dom, and I really appreciate it. TD is up three quarters of a percent today. Take a look at the year-to-date performance of Canadian Bank. Obviously, this would have been cross-border. The ex-U.S. banks outperforming by a long shot the U.S. banks this year. TD here is only down 7% year-to-date. HSBC, both HSBC and Unicredit just had earnings this week, up 18% since Jan 1. And look at Unicredit. 
credit up 36 percent. This is huge differentiation, Dom. We did not see this in 2008. And people are wondering, is it just a matter of catch up or a structural difference? I'm glad you brought it up because there is now a thematic view among some bank investors and just investors in general about whether U.S. banks are better off than their European counterparts. And just this morning, analysts over at uh, Citigroup upgraded Deutsche Bank to a buy rating. Right. And and what they said was... In an environment like this? They're they're more transparent. Their liquidity issues are slightly less in focus right now. And they've been more transparent about their commercial real estate exposure, especially in the U.S. They upgrade on the buy. They say it's an attractive entry point. So it just kind of gives you an idea of that debate going on. Oh, they go from... Right. The CDS popping after Credit Suisse to now being an upgrade today. Dom, I'll see you next hour. You got it. Thank you very much. Is this just a problem with the U.S. banks then or a canary in the coal mine for a looming global recession, let's bring in former FDIC chair Sheila Baer. She's author of the New York Times bestseller Bull by the Horns and award-winning children's books Money Tales. Sheila, I'm almost tempted to ask you to tell us the children's book version of this, but uh, let me just get right to the point today. What would stop the bleeding? So I only try to write happy stories for the kids, so I don't think I write about this. Yeah, so I do think, uh, look, this is overblown. Uh, Regional banks, vast majority of regional banks are just fine. Uh, and uh, I do think there's been a lot of hyperbole around this, you know, saying, oh, this is the second, third, fourth largest failures of history. That's really misleading because during the great financial crisis, we had a lot of very large banks that should have failed. We didn't let fail, right? So this is nothing like the great financial crisis. And people should make comparisons or apply it. The vast majority of these banks are fine. If you're below the insured deposit limits, you do not have to worry. The FDIC, 90 years, a perfect record of protecting uh, insured deposits. If you're uninsured, you should be vigilant. I I do think that Congress should move to uh, provide an unlimited uh, deposit guarantee only for transaction accounts. This is something that we did during the great financial crisis. We were seeing uninsured deposits migrate to these too big to fail banks. We're worried about concentrations in these very large institutions. I think a temporary unlimited guarantee for transaction accounts, these are operational accounts that businesses use, nonprofits, local governments, to, to, you know, to make payroll, to pay bills, uh, to bring money in, to, 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 to take money out, there are, there's an important real economy uh, benefit for having those accounts continue to function. And again, I think the regional banks, given their extensive business relation, uh, lending relationships with small businesses and medium-sized businesses in particular, yeah. would benefit particularly from that. So I do think that is a measure that is called for but only mainly because there's just a lot of uh, what I think is unwarranted hysteria around this. So on that note, Sheila, let me just try to clarify a couple of points that are out there in the market. Um, The first is that we could give deposits a backstop in 08, but we can't anymore because of Dodd-Frank, that now we need Congress. So do we need Congress? Or Dan Clifton and others have made the point that you could do kind of a nuclear option workaround using Treasury's exchange stabilization fund in a true emergency. you know, as he as he himself said, it would be a bit of a nuclear move. Right. So how do we backstop deposits? Well, yeah, it, it's just distress. As someone who used to work in the Senate for many years, it distresses me that because Congress has become so polarized and dysfunctional, we have to think about all these workarounds that, frankly, are bad governance. I certainly think the administration should first try to get approval from Congress. This is something we did during the great financial crisis. Actually, Congress authorizes these unlimited guarantees for transaction accounts during the pandemic, the FDIC didn't need to use it, but it was authorized. It was requested by the Trump administration. It's, it's nonpartisan. So I do think they should at least ask. If, if you can't get it and things deteriorate, maybe you need to look at these other nuclear options. But first, try to do the right process and go to the Hill. Yeah. So then the next question is, 
on this uh, short selling ban, there's analysts. I mean, I just read an analyst note today where he's totally flipping out, talking about how short sellers are driving these banks to zero and we have yeah. to intervene and slap a ban on this again. What would your right. response yeah. be to that uh, idea? Yeah, we did do a moratorium, short selling moratorium. Uh, there, there was the same kind of a problem during the great financial crisis. I do think a lot of this is being driven by short sellers who, again, are capitalizing on kind of, I think, some of the exaggerated characterizations of what's going on. So, uh, you know, that's the SEC's call, but it's important for people, depositors, to understand what a bank's share price is has nothing to do with whether a bank regulator considers it insolvent and thus needs to be closed. A bank capital determination is based on, on your book equity, basically at a high level, whether your assets exceed your liabilities. And <laughs> these banks are, you know, that's okay. Uh, based on the current accounting rules, uh, there, you know, it's not apparent that there's an issue. So don't don't worry when you see a share price tank like that. A lot of it, I think, is being driven by short selling. It doesn't. It may or may not say that the bank is weak, but it doesn't have anything to do with the regulatory determination of whether a bank is insolvent and needs to be closed. I think the unsettling thing is that so many of the the candidates who have been the hardest hit then go on to be the ones that are, are failing. I mean, the precedent here is troubling. Yeah. And one other question yeah, on that. Is. You know, who's going to rescue banks that need additional funding, capital yeah, purchases? Right. We've already played the J.P. Morgan card. They needed a deposit waiver just to do that. Are there right. enough other big or super regional banks out there who would be able to acquire weaker players? Yeah. And what does it mean well, for the SDIC is, fund? Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, this could be, especially if they keep trying to find ways to protect uninsured without, you know, this is why I think you need targeted protection for transaction accounts. The other uninsured uh, should be subject to the caps. So um, it, it's a good question. Uh, but I will tell you, it looks to me like there's a lot of bargains out there for some open bank acquisitions. <laughs> you don't need to get the FDIC involved. That's probably easier uh, than to try to wait for the government to step in. And I don't know that the government will step in. Uh, again, a lot of this is being driven by fear uh, and not basic fundamentals about how healthy these banks are. Quick final word, Sheila. Would raising the deposit cap even matter at this point? Because I wonder if the concern has migrated from uninsured depositors and, and, and sort of flighty money to actually just concerns about credit weakness. Going, right. We're going into recession, obviously, just yeah. a question of timing at this yeah. point. So you could raise the cap on transactions. I'm not even sure that would make a difference in this phase of the crisis. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's a good point. There, there is a, a larger looming issue of recession and monetary policy and the continued kind of ratcheting up of, of interest rates. And this, this really has nothing to do with whether, uh, you know, banks have taken, made bad loans or bad investments. With this a steeply inverted yield curve, look, a bank business model is borrowing short and lending long. If your short-term cost of borrowing are going to exceed your, your returns in, in, in lending longer, investing longer, you've got a problem with that model. And part of the problem, the way the Fed has been tightening is that they're really focusing almost exclusively on short-term rates. They haven't done much in the way of selling their portfolio, which would impact longer-term rates. Mm -hmm. And then they're raising short-term rates basically by paying banks and other financial intermediaries not to lend. You can park your bank at the Fed, get a nice juicy return. It's going to go up to over 5% now. So that really, this, this yield curve inversion and how the Fed is raising short-term rates and focusing almost exclusively on short-term rates 
is a much bigger concern I have than whether banks have been particularly mismanaged or underregulated or not. That's a fascinating point. Sheila, we thank you so much for your time today. I know you got to hop on to your next uh, appearance. Sheila Bear joining me to talk about the state of the banking system, former chair of the FDIC during the financial crisis, no less. Now, concerns about the health of the banking system are taking on added urgency as the U.S. careens towards the debt ceiling. Remember, in 2011, lawmakers waited till stocks fell almost 20 percent before taking action. And my next guest sees a similar setup this time around, which would also mean another leg down for the financials in particular. Let's bring in Brian Reynolds. He's chief market strategist with Reynolds Strategy. And joining me here on set is Chad Morganlander, senior portfolio manager with Washington Crossing Advisors. Welcome to both of you. Brian, we just had a four-week T-bill auction go off at 5.84 percent. That was just about an hour or two ago. And last week, that same auction was 200 basis points lower. Last week? We've had a flight to... Last week, the four-week bill was 200 basis points lower than it is today because one matured in May and the other matured in June. And there's been a flight to quality this week within the Treasury bill market, which should be the safest market around, but it's not because of this debt ceiling issue. And one of the points that you've made is that we kind of need to get to June 15th, then a rush of corporate tax revenue hits. That might buy us a couple more months time, September 15. I think we face a similar scenario, but it's going to be dicey for the next, what do we call it, 27 days. How much money do you think, how much time do they really have left? Do you think we're going to hit the ceiling before uh, June 1? No, I don't. The Treasury Secretary on Monday made her announcement, and all she's ever talked about is the earliest day that there could be a debt ceiling. And what she did in January, when we would have hit the debt ceiling on January 19th, she's been taking extraordinary measures granted to her by Congress to push the debt ceiling out. She's only talked about the earliest it could be breached. In January, she said it would be early June at the earliest. What she said this week would be June 1 at the earliest. She pulled it in by about 10 days, just a small amount. And that set off a wave of rising rates in Treasury bills in June and falling rates on Treasury bills in May. It was a pure flight to quality. It was an overreaction. If we can get to June 15th, we push this out. Yeah. And I, I don't think she wants that. That's why she pulled it in. I think she wants to bring everyone to the table to get a quick resolution. Interesting. Otherwise, it will be a repeat of 2011 and we will have a stock price decline. And that's the thing that will get Congress to compromise. I, I feel better, Chad. I mean, if, <laughs> listen, there's no one better than Brian on this stuff. If he says maybe we're not going to hit it and we could wait a couple months, then I don't know. Could we rally or is the bank uh, crisis and, and recessionary concerns going to overcome that? So we have a cornucopia of issues here. Like Sheila Baer said, you have the, fi- the financial issues as well as the debt ceiling. Uh, yes, there could be a softening within the overall markets. Uh, we do anticipate that to occur. Uh, With that said, uh, we would be advising investors to move up the quality spectrum, not only within the equity markets, but also the fixed income markets. Sure. And let's talk about this and dwell on it for just a second. The heart of the issue right now and kind of what brings this whole discussion together are yields that you can get um, on various types of things. T-bills right now, Brian, I think the six month is still yielding more than 5%. Chad, if you look at uh, one year CDs, a lot of them you can still get around 5%. You know, on on high yield savings, you can get upwards of 4.5%. That makes for a very, uh, unfortunately, difficult environment. I mean, maybe a good one for for people who at least feel like they have someplace put their money for a few months. Well, there's an alternative. You don't have to be in the highest risky stocks and you don't have to be in the deep end of the risk pool. Uh, So now this is what the Federal Reserve wanted. They wanted to decelerate credit creation, credit demand. There's going to be a tightening of lending overall uh, and there's going to be headwinds. You have money supply that's negative and going negative. You have credit creation from the Z1 report from the Federal Reserve showing a deceleration of credit 
And now you have, of course, what Brian's mentioning, which is this headline risk. We don't think, though, there's going to be default within the U.S. government, but overall it could create some major uh, choppy waters. All right, Brian, I know you've been cautious on the market for some time because of this event, but also because of others. So just sketch it out for us. Sell in May and go away or or what's going to happen here? From a trading standpoint, I think I want to, I've been saying I want to sell rallies in the Mm -hmm. stock market and buy declines because this is a choppy environment we're, we're creating. We've got investors, institutional investors, reaching for safety. In the money market space, they're reaching for the safest bills and overnight repo with the Fed. And the banking system has drawn down a tremendous amount of borrowing from the Fed, which means, as, as was said earlier, they're not going to be extending credit. So in that environment, I want to sell rallies, because if we do get past June 1 on the debt ceiling, I think there will be a relief rally, and I want to sell that as a trader. And I want to buy dislocations below S&P 4,000. Interesting. So you're not buying until we get below 4,000? There's no need to push it. If you look at it as 2011 as the template for the last debt ceiling debate, there was no need to rush. Congress usually waits to the last minute to decide something, and then it takes the market a month or two to gyrate and think about whether this is real or not, and then stock prices would go up. There's no need to rush right now. All right, we got to go, but Chad, same thing. Below 4,000, do you get more excited about buying equities, or does it have to go lower than that? Well, what you should do is just layer in risk, go with the 60-40 portfolio of high-quality stocks and bonds. Uh, this is what I would recommend for not only retail investors, but also institutional investors at this inflection Well, point. certainly we can be more comfortable with the bond piece of that lately, I think. Thank you both. Chad Morganlander and Brian Reynolds joining me today. Coming up, the next major market event is tomorrow morning's jobs report. What if it comes in hot, like ADP just did? And what if it doesn't? Plus, shares of Paramount plunging after missing earnings estimates, slashing its dividend from 24 cents a share to five, and now getting a credit rating downgrade to triple B minus at S&P. We'll look at its worsening problems when the exchange comes back right after this. Dow's down less than 300 points. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Jobless claims came in high this week. Bad sign for the labor market. But we also had ADP tell us on Wednesday that we added more jobs than expected last month. So what will the government's official read tell us tomorrow morning? And what will it mean for the Fed and the markets? Here with more is Evan Sohn. He's chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, we are desperate for any any sign here on the labor. I don't want to root for it to crack. But at the same time, it feels like the Fed just thinks everyone's going to be like, we can lose all these banks and there's not going to be any any big spillover effect? I don't know. I, I, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. I, I you know, I'm going to use the same word we just used in the last segment. It's a choppy job market. Um, we're seeing layoffs. We're seeing hiring freezes. Uh, we're seeing uh, old established companies putting a hiring freeze because AI is going to take over jobs. Uh, yet we saw 49 percent of the rec- of the recruiters reported salaries went up. Uh, we saw New York City, uh, New York is now increasing the minimum wage. Um, so there, there's this crazy trend going on now. You looked at the Joel report and the hiring numbers for February, March were the same, but the quits were actually coming down. So I think the quit year over year quit 
according to the Jolt report, was uh, 15% fewer quits in March than they were of 23 to March of 22. Uh, so the hiring is, is staying consistent. The quits are actually coming down. But we also saw that uh, I think 38% more uh, people reported of the candidates having three jobs in the past two years. Uh, that actually means that you're going to see here now, uh, I lost my job, maybe I was laid off, but I can get rehired really quickly. So we're seeing, and the application volume is actually increasing. So there are fewer recruiters actually handling more jobs. So that tells you what in terms of how quickly we might see payroll gains go to payroll, payroll losses? Yeah, so look, I I think there's still, and the disparity here is the different types of jobs. We've had lots of openings still on the service side of the economy. Um, and so it's the knowledge workers that are getting laid off uh, and uh, and the uh, the replacements of the service-oriented jobs. The travel jobs were up, uh, according to our index. Um, so you're seeing these layoffs, uh, you know, what you're seeing on the screen here now. Knowledge workers, real, real knowledge workers. Now, many of them are finding jobs uh, quickly, and we saw some really good statistics about that a couple of months ago. Uh, but we're seeing changing. We're seeing changing priorities. Uh, Work-life balance is coming back up here now. We saw what reasons for leaving were management-related, not just compensation-related, but management-related. And kind of if we extend that out, then what do you expect people to experience in the workplace? Okay, so this is now May as we kind of move through the summer months. I think that, you know, it's it's almost this management's going to say, hey, look, you have to do more with less. There are fewer of you, right? We've, we've right-sized the company or we've laid people off uh, to adjust to the economy to ensure that we're driving profitability. But now you're going to have to do more. And you spent that pandemic time of almost doing less, right? I had more free time, more availability, and now I'm going to be pushed to actually getting more done and being more efficient, more effective. Sort of the Elon, the Elon Musk approach of, hey, like do more with a lot less. <laughs> and I think there's going to be that pressure, which is why we really saw work-life balance sort of come up as a higher priority this past index than compensation. And that goes back, I mean, the remote work issue, obviously, this one was for so long a driving factor in the labor force. What's happening with remote work now? Uh, so we actually saw that pick pick back up here now, and, and that probably goes with sales, right? Sales has always been, and again, and not always, but many sales roles have always been remote, right? You want the salespeople out in the field. And we saw that actually hit the number one uh, industry segment that the recruiters were recruiting for. So not surprising that remote would tick up if people are focused on the sales side and healthcare was down and healthcare is typically an in-person role. All right, Evan, appreciate your time today, and we'll see. Drum roll, please, for the morning and for beyond. Evan Sohn Thanks from so Recruiter.com. Coming up in a sea of red today, Royal Caribbean is an island of green on the back of better-than-expected results. We'll talk to the CEO next about fallout from the bank turmoil on the consumer. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow. It has turned negative for the year. It's breaking below its 50-day moving average of 33,076, but now well back above that level, 33,197 as the tone firms up a little here as we move throughout the afternoon. About two to one decliners versus gainers. Goldman Sachs, while it's only the fourth worst in the uh, percentage terms right now, one of the biggest point drags on the Dow. The exchange is back after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. We are still having our worst week since mid-March here, but we're off the lows. The Dow is down almost 500 points right now, down 247. And take a look. We had an IPO today. Johnson & Johnson spinning off that consumer health business. They're calling it Kenview. K-V-U-E is the ticker there. Uh, first IPO, or biggest IPO, I should say, since Rivian in November of 2021. Now, that, of course, was the month of the NASDAQ peak. This one, price near the high end of the range yesterday, $22 a share. Healthcare is one of the healthcare, one of the only places you want to be right now. So, again, price at 22 goes public at, uh, you know, we're calling about 26 right now. Public at 2553, I'm sorry, trading at 2629 right now. And it does value the company around $50 billion. Elsewhere, Royal Caribbean is higher after the cruise operator reported better than expected results and raised its full year guidance, almost a 9% pop. Joining us now is the CEO, Jason Liberty, along with our very own Seema Modi. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Jason, any signs of weakness yet from the bank crisis and everything going on? Well, first, thanks for having me today and, uh, and greetings from Oasis of the Seas. Uh, as we talked about this morning, we are not seeing any sign of weakness uh, from our guests. Uh, if anything, we've seen acceleration, not just in terms of demand, but also their willingness to pay. You know, Stiefel analyst uh, Jason calling it a mic drop moment really for the entire cruise industry after you reported earnings this morning. You raised your profit outlook, but talk to us about the financing environment at a time where you're trying to build your pipeline. I know you have the Icon coming out next year, one of the world's largest ships, but does that become harder to finance as credit conditions stay tight? Yeah, so, so first off, whenever we enter uh, a contract for a ship, we always have uh, fully committed financing. So there's no issue with us in terms of uh, gaining access for financing for our ships. And fortunately, we have methodically taken uh, a lot of great action um, on our balance sheet, and uh, we don't really see any need um, in the in the immediate or, or even near term uh, in order to have to access the capital market. So you know, we're generating a lot of cash flow. Um, this business, uh, when it's fully up and operating, which it is now, uh, generates a lot of cash flow and, and uh, allows us to uh, to uh, effectively uh, service uh, our outstanding obligations. Maybe we just have to say it's a bifurcation in the economy. Banking stocks down, but the travel stocks <laughs> outperforming on this resiliency that we're seeing in the consumer. How long can this last? I know you raise your profit outlook, but when it comes to pricing, do you see that remaining strong and the customer being willing to pay up for a cruise going into the second half of this year? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of great tailwinds for us. There's demographic uh, um, tailwinds. There's secular, like you clearly see, and you can see this in the credit card data, as well as in our data, people shifting from buying stuff to buying experiences. Um, the other thing, which is, you know, we trade still at a pretty significant uh, discount to land-based vacation. And so I think even with the consumer that if, if they evolve to be a little bit mixed, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, fly to value. And, of course, you know, we want to try to close that value gap um, but we see really accelerated demand and they're and they're making bookings well into 24 and into 2025. So we have a pretty good sense of what they're looking to do. And Jason, I'm curious, you know, the last time we had a bad recession, obviously 2008, that was when the consumer was overextended. They were running on fumes. They were right in the middle of the home price collapse. This does feel a little different. So how do you kind of prepare for and expect to navigate through an environment where your business, I hate to say it, but maybe could do okay? And and if so, does the industry make any sort of consolidation moves? Or do you think that everybody could benefit from some of the tailwinds that you're seeing? Well, I, I think, well, first off, I, I don't I don't really see any any uh, consolidation moves uh, in, in the future. Um, I What I do see is that I think that there is this flight to value. And of course, the higher quality operators, which we would describe ourselves, uh, we feel are going to win. Best brands, best ships, best people, um, and the ability to deliver these incredible experiences uh, to our guests. 
So I think we feel, you know, even in, in choppier times, there is a reality that you know, our guests, our customers who we address, um, they're, they're well employed, uh, they have high, high paying jobs, and they're sitting on a lot of savings. And that puts them in a pretty good place um, as, as the market or the, or the dynamics might change. I think analysts were surprised by the comeback you're seeing in Europe, where itineraries accounted for about 17% of your full year capacity. Uh, how does that look going into the summer, Jason? Yeah, but one of our key differentiators is that you know our, our brands are globalized, and so we source our guests from all over the world. So we also source a lot of our guests for Europe, out of Europe. Mm. Um, and, and so that platform allows us uh, to really kind of harvest quality demand uh, anywhere in the world. And what we are seeing, while we were a little bit nervous earlier in the year, um, you know, that has completely buoyed itself. Um, and we've seen pretty strong demand trends for Europe here um, as we go into the summer. All right, stock up 47%. I've been on that ship, uh, wow. Kelly, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it good for toddlers? <laughs> yeah, I believe so. They've got a lot it of activities. It is great for toddlers. Do you have babysitting? <laughs> a lot of activities. Is it free? Jason? We do. Okay. All of that, actually. <laughs> Jason, we thank do. you very much for your time today. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me. Take J care. Jason Liberty and our Seema Modi. Fascinating stuff, Seema. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get to a quick break, though. Uh, before we do that, let's get over to Dom Chu for a CNBC News update. All right, thank you very much, Kelly. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The World Health Organization firing the scientist who led a high-profile United Nations delegation to China two years ago. Peter Ben Embarek was dismissed last year over sexual misconduct allegations stemming from 2015 and 2017. The WHO says it has stepped up efforts to root out sexual abuse and harassment in recent months. A New York state judge dismissing former President Donald Trump's $100 million lawsuit against The New York Times and three of its journalists. Trump filed that suit back in 2021 against The Times for its Pulitzer Prize winning series on his finances back in 2018. The judge also ordering Trump to pay attorney's fees for the paper and those three defendants. And a jury concluded that British singer Ed Sheeran did not, not steal key components of Marvin Gaye's classic tune, Let's Get It On, when he created his hit song, Thinking Out Loud. The verdict comes after a two-week trial that featured a courtroom performance by Sheeran, as the singer insisted that the trial was a threat to all musicians who create their own music. Music, news, Kelly, back over yeah, to you. You know, it's, I have to always stop from breaking out in song. Uh, we'll spare the audience. but uh, I've seen it happen before, I, I'm just saying. I think this, I, look, I think he's right. You know, you always want people to get their due, but if you stop creativity because things just, you know, sound a little too similar, I don't know, it does feel like it would chill, act, chill activity. I, I think you're way more creative than I am, Kelly. <laughs> I'll see you next hour, Dom. Thank you. Coming up, Apple earnings. We're live in Cupertino with more on what its partners and customers have been hinting about how its quarter could go. The exchange is back after this with Apple Red by a, a third of 1%. Welcome back to the exchange. Apple expected to report a drop in revenue for the second straight quarter amid falling demand for PCs and smartphones. And yet the stock is up 30% this year. Is the bad news fully priced in or not? For more, joining us now on set, New York Times assistant editor Ed Lee, remotely Rosenblatt senior analyst Barton Crockett, and CNBC's own Steve Kovac is at the Apple Visitor Center. Not anything, you know, just only the Visitor Center uh, in Cupertino, California. Steve, <laughs> I want to start with you. Do tell, I mean, what's the whole scuttlebutt here after Qualcomm and everyone else that we've heard from about how this quarter is going to go? Yeah, so Kelly, you're right. And by the way, I am at Apple HQ. That's right behind me. There's a spaceship <laughs> behind me. But look, 
Anyway, what what you're right about that Qualcomm warning that kind of sent fears uh, rippling throughout today's uh, what's expected for today's earnings. And that's really it's all hinging on the guidance. Is it we are expecting the guidance to show, yes, sales are going to be down again in the June quarter year over year. But how bad is it going to be? The kind of sentiment in the investor community and the analysts are saying, look, if it's about five percent, you know, deceleration or uh, down quarter, fine, great. But if it gets worse than that, then uh, things are going to start to show, uh, you know, some panic around the demand for Apple products. And that's that's telling because last year the story around Apple was it was resistant to all this demand weakness. And especially when we're talking about demand. Yes, iPhone is supposed to be or expected to be more resilient. But Mac and iPad are going to be way down year on year. Just the whole PC market is collapsing right now. Barton, what multiple do you think Apple deserves to trade at right now? Look, I think they're uh, they're trading right now at about a 27 PE. Um, you know, they're they're getting close to my price target. I've had a buy rating on the shares this year. That's about 1.5 times uh, the market multiple right now, which is on a relative basis peak. On the absolute basis, not peak. But um, look, I think that uh, um, uh, you know I've been uh, liking Apple. You know, I think if there's some pullback, uh, there's your opportunity to kind of pick up some more shares. You do have to be kind of valuation sensitive and environment sensitive. And there's a lot of treacherous things in the air right now that could trip these guys up uh, on the, the report that we're hearing tonight. You know, weighing against that is they're making the best device uh, in the most important area on the planet right now, which is smartphones. Um, you know, IDC numbers had them down only 2% in the March quarter in units and the industry down 15%. That type of share gain for this important of a device I think we'll continue to pull people into Apple, um, you know, as a relatively kind of durable play uh, in an important area. But yeah. clearly there's a lot of things in the air to worry about today. And Ed, this is the quarter they opened that store or those stores in India. So yes. that if you're yeah. looking to pull people in, that's a big opportunity. Well, they don't they don't want to rely too much on China. Right. So in the March quarter, we're looking, you know, China opened back up. So that might probably help them. Except for Estee Lauder, who Except had that, Lauder. you know, kind exactly. of face plant on the China exposure <laughs> exactly. a little bit. So so opening up in India, I think, is, is crucial, it, not just opening to the consumers there, but also manufacturing, right? So I think that's Tim Cook's way of saying, you know, we really need to hedge against China. It's super important to them, but they need to find other ways in to, to expand their market. All right. We have to talk Paramount uh, with everybody yes. here as well. The stock is down 27 percent today after missing on earnings and cutting its dividend. Berkshire, remember, uh, is the largest stakeholder of Paramount. And last month, Becky Quick asked Warren Buffett about it. Take a listen. It isn't fundamentally that good a business, whether it was distributing, producing movies or and and. You've got some people that have got deep pockets that aren't going to quit. And the product they're offering people, the chance to watch all those movies, you know, for peanuts and all that. But can they raise prices? We'll find out. But so far, they haven't been able to. They've been able to attract subscribers, but they have attracted them at a terrible price. All right. You gave a whole lot of reasons why not to buy Paramount. Why did you buy it? Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that might have, that was like the best five seconds yeah. there. Why, well, why did you buy it, Ed? What would you say about well, that? Well, I mean, I, I think it's a takeover target, obviously, right? I mean, it's got great intellectual property, decades and decades of library stuff. It just doesn't have the distribution. That's the problem, right? So in an industry where distribution is cratering, but you've got a lot of IP, you know, an exit, Basically, whether it's a Netflix or an Apple, for that matter, coming along looking for it, I think that's a possibility. Amazon. Would Apple, Steve, be the buyer? 
this happens all the time. People talk about, is Apple going to buy a studio? Disney is the one that constantly gets thrown about. It would be very surprising if they buy a studio like this. I'm not sure what the valuation, but it would easily be their biggest acquisition ever over, Be over when they bought Beats several years ago. So they usually don't have an appetite for buying this uh, stuff this big. At the same time, if you want to talk about what they are going to spend their money on, sports rights seems to be what they're more interested in, Kelly. So Absolutely. those NBA rights are going to come up pretty soon. The NBA one is the big, and it kind of fit Apple, Apple's whole ethos. I don't know. Barton, you can comment on that or on Paramount, whichever you think is uh, less dangerous, I guess. Well, look, I think they're connected. Look, I've got a sell rating on Paramount. Um, you know, I do think that um, the idea of someone buying them is, you know, hope over substance uh, in terms of a big tech company. They don't want the TV networks. Um, the distribution, um, they don't want. They would take the content and put it on their own uh, internet kind of platform. So, you know, if you're just valuing it on the content library, um, I don't think it's uh, something you want to own into a takeover. Moreover, Sherry doesn't want to sell because she sees an opportunity to improve the business. And I don't think they're ready to quit now and she can call the shots there. Um, so, you know, I think it's a tough setup. And I think that all of their cash flow comes from traditional pay TV. And that's very tethered to sports. And the issue here is that more of the sports rights are going to the tech companies mm -hmm. that can afford the inflationary spiral that we're, you know, kind of continue to go through. Absolutely. So, you know, if NBA goes to Apple, that's bad for everyone at pay TV, whether you have NBA rights or not. Very well said. And great to have you here, Barton, on a day where you've got, you know, your maybe not your favorite buy and a sell, but uh, certainly tells the whole story. Barton Crockett, Ed Lee, appreciate it right. as well. And Steve, thank you. I know you'll be out there with a very busy afternoon to come, our Steve Kovac. Quick programming note this weekend, don't miss Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder meeting Saturday, May 6th, live all day on CNBC and CNBC. NBC.com. Reports just crossing that Microsoft will help finance AMD's expansion into AI processors. Shares of AMD are popping almost 9% on that news. Remember, AMD just had a tough quarter a little bit earlier this week. Coming up, one small business sentiment gauge was sitting at recession levels last month, but a new CNBC survey reveals Main Street could be regaining confidence, at least for the short term. We've got the results next. Welcome back, everybody. Could small business confidence actually be brightening? The latest CNBC survey monkey read on small business is out, and Kate Rogers is here with the full results. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. We surveyed 2,000 small business owners in late April. Here's what we found. First off, owners who have confidence in the banking system versus those who don't came in at a nearly even split at 49 and 50 percent, respectively. A majority of small business owners say that they are confident their business capital is secure, but less, about 53 percent, say it's easy for them to actually access the capital needed for operations. And two-thirds of respondents said that they were banking mostly at community and regional banks, with the remaining 40 percent at larger institutions. Now, Generally, as you mentioned, small business owners are feeling somewhat more confident with the business confidence index showing an overall score of 46 out of 100. But the broader outlook on the economy, not so hot. Just 21 percent say that the economy is good or great right now. Part of the big issue here is inflation. It's been a stubborn top concern for owners for more than a year at this point. But as you and I have been discussing, I think that banking picture is going to be really important as we move ahead. Absolutely. And that's why I was surprised to hear that their confidence might be brightening at all in the near term. But maybe it's just a sense of, OK, doomsday, but not now or something like that. It's such a mixed bag. So we did see this quarter that more owners were feeling that they were going to increase their headcount over the next year and that their revenues would also increase over the next year. But 
broad outlooks on the economy are not great. So they're feeling somewhat better. But again, this banking issue, we have to see how that continues to play out. This is our own CNBC data. We also have the NFIB optimism index out again next week for the month of April. So that will give us a good look there as well. But I think that's going to be a really key concern moving ahead. For sure. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers reporting today. Still ahead, this name up about 17% year-to-date, and Morgan Stanley's Ron Candom calls it the best growth story in the REIT space, predicting 10% earnings growth over the next few years. What's got him so bullish despite the commercial real estate concerns next? And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here is Glow Recipe co-founder and co-CEO Christine Chang. It's been incredibly rewarding to build Glow Recipe together with Sarah, my co-founder. We know that female co-founder duos are unique in the industry, and it's been an honor for us to leverage our heritage and be able to storytell around how skincare should be this beautiful, joyful, sensorial self-care experience. My advice for other AAPI founders would be to take up space. Don't minimize your achievements. Don't be afraid to ask for more, ask often, and advocate for your achievements. You deserve to shine. Welcome back to The Exchange. The regional banking turmoil touching off commercial real estate concerns. The sector already dealing with COVID-related vacancy problems and big box store bankruptcies. Those factors showing up in earnings this week. Manhattan-focused Vornado reporting weaker-than-expected revenues. Mall operator Simon Property Group missed on its funds from operations. VNO pairing losses today after trading new 52-week lows, while SPGs down about 6%. It's not all bad news, though. Shares of extra space storage, because we are a storage nation, are up 8% after reaffirming full-year guidance despite a miss, and senior housing rate Well Tower is only down fractionally. And that was our mystery chart. Well Tower seeing earnings and margin tailwinds on its earnings call yesterday, and it's the name my next guest says is the best growth story in REITs right now. Let's bring back Ron Camden, Morgan Stanley's REIT analyst. It's great to see you again, Ron. Welcome. Great. Great to be on. So let me just start. I mean, I know it's not, you know, the most dazzling thing to talk about, but when we talk about senior living and, and the, that REIT area, it was actually an area of concern that um, Huntington Bank flagged for us a couple of weeks ago. For them, it was more specific to long-term care where they just said reimbursement rate, rates hadn't kept up with inflation. So I am curious about, you know, if there's any places other than self-storage to be in the REIT space right now. Yeah, for sure. So if you think about the backdrop in the senior housing space, During the pandemic, they lost a tremendous amount of occupancy. So industry occupancy was 90% before the pandemic, and it went all the way down to 75%. Wow. So what we think is really interesting about this space and the REIT is there's a massive opportunity as occupancy gained to see pretty outsized uh, organic growth out of the sector. So if you look at the national housing and care data in 1Q23, you actually saw occupancy gains industry-wide of about 250 basis points, and you saw rent growth coming through sort of in the mid-single-digit space. So when you take a step back and you think about the senior housing the senior housing recovery, there's really limited ways to play it in the REIT space, and Wall Tower is one of the few ways to do that. And we are looking for organic growth yeah. to drive over 10% earnings growth, which should be twice the rest of the REIT group. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the REIT play on healthcare, And everyone knows that, you know, if you feel defensive and bearish, you know, you pile into healthcare, And, and this has some of those characteristics. Let's go back to some of the main uh, points of concern, which are obviously commercial real estate and to some extent uh, retail and shopping center. What inning are we in in terms of price innings? I thought you made an interesting point here that REITs have more negative news priced into them than the S&P 500. It, it, that seems like not an efficient market. Yeah. 
So when you think about the commercial real estate market, it's a big and diversified market. We size it at about 11 trillion. And the connection to the banks is that it's a levered asset class. So you have about four and a half trillion of debt outstanding. If you look at the lenders, about 40% are the banks. And if I double click that 40%, you're gonna see that 70% of the 40 are the small banks. So it's, there's no question that the fact that the banks are tightening lending conditions is gonna have a negative impact on the commercial real estate market. So I think the reason that the REITs have priced in so much is because the REITs also have leverage. So the market's anticipating potential downside in property values, and that gets magnified in the equity values that you're talking about. I think you are getting closer to the end, but you're not quite there yet, because even though some of the sectors like office have priced in a lot, there's other parts of the real estate market that still have really out of value leverage, that still have maturities coming due, that have not been fully baked in yet. So at this point, we still think there's potentially more downside before it's all clear. Yeah, and I guess the, the question just becomes, you know, what, what I don't want to use a word like contagion, but when we start seeing the banks move as quickly as we are, um, what does that mean for trading the rates? You know, what happened in 2008? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the way you want to think about the REITs is, look, there are 16 different subsectors. So there's always some pockets of opportunity where there's very low leverage, where there's really good balance sheet that you could take advantage of. Senior housing was one of the ones that you mentioned on. Industrial logistics is one that we find really interesting. But you do want to be really, really careful about the parts of the market that do have really high leverage. Uh, that's uh, We talked about office initially, but if you look at some of the lodging names, if you look at some of the retail names, you want to steer clear of those because, again, as property values come down, if you have leverage, that's even more downside for the equities. Why, what's wrong with the lodging names? So if you think about uh, Pebblebrook and PK, they've got, they're trading at about seven times debt to EBITDA, which is about one to two turns above uh, where the rest of the REIT market is. And in an environment where you have maturities coming due and you're trying to refinance those assets, you could have some potential downside to both the interest costs and obviously the earnings of those companies. That's fascinating. So then finally, do you ride it out in kind of multifamily and, and real estate or is that an area where the pressure will be coming down the road? It's a really good question. Um, on the multifamily side, we think you got to be selective um, because if you think about multifamily, there is a lot of supply coming in the Sun Belt. There is a repricing that's happening in the commercial real estate market. And multifamily had some of the, the highest valuation or the lowest cap rates, right? So as rates sort of move, you could see more sort of repricing happen. So we're being a little bit more selective on the multifamily side, only looking at names like UDR that are pretty well diversified, pretty good operators. And again, don't face as much of a headwind on the supply front. So you got to be selective. Yeah, and I, you know, we appreciate your knowledge. If there was REITs Jeopardy, I would bet on you going all the way. You know, it's a there's so many different pockets here to cover. And at a time when people are just w kind of treating everything like it's the same, um, you know, your experience is really appreciated. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Ron Camden joining us from Morgan Stanley. That does it for The Exchange today, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.